0: jane brown libby will be back tomorrow
1: so we've been receiving emails and messages from you out there who've managed to get a second covid dose appointment moved up from your original 16 weeks and then there are others who are still battling with the ontario portal trying to get an accelerated appointment for those of you who got your first vaccine at a pharmacy what about you how has your experience been in moving up your second shots? 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. To provide us with some text uh, context with what is going on and best advice to navigate the system, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel is with us, family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research, and Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, both friends to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Hi to both of you.
2: Hello there. Thank you for having me, Jane. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Justin, I'll start with you. How have bookings been going and how are the various pharmacies dealing with moving up second dose appointments? Well, I think this has been
3: an ongoing communications challenge. uh, And I would add to that that supply continues to uh, be much slower than what we need in terms of meeting all of the increase in demand for people that want to a shorter um, timeline now for their second dose. So we're doing everything we can to accommodate uh, people and help them navigate through this chaos because even uh, being involved in this every day, when I look at who's eligible, where and when they can go, it's it's very complex for people. And uh, pharmacists are answering a lot of questions about the policy changes and, of course, the uh, more clinical uh, questions around, you know, what what should I do? Should I get an AstraZeneca as my second dose? Should I go with an mRNA? Uh, and what is the drop-off or trade-off of going from the optimal 12 to, to 8 weeks? So it's, uh, there's a lot going on right now.
1: Well, and what are you telling people when they ask you about that? Because that was the big change yesterday, that AstraZeneca first recipients uh, can now book a second dose as early as 8 weeks rather than 12, and before that it was 16.
3: Mm. Well, in terms of getting everyone in, it's really uh, challenging from a pharmacy perspective because we're still very much on a low supply side of mRNA vaccines. We're getting a lot more on the AstraZeneca side. So we know Moderna is coming in and that will provide uh, more options and choice uh, through a pharmacy. But uh, until then, we have a limited amount of mRNA vaccines. I think it's all about informed consent, people understanding the risks and benefits um, and and understanding the science behind uh, mixing and and where those recommendations are. If we look at the Delta variant, uh, certainly in the hotspots, but also elsewhere, having greater protection of being fully vaccinated brings a lot of benefits. And and that, even if there is a drop in efficacy, and there's different data out there from the studies in Spain and the UK and Germany showing it at uh, eight weeks uh, when mixing – I think people can be confident that's going to increase your protection, but also people may want to wait uh, for the optimal 12 weeks if Mm -hmm. they're looking at an AstraZeneca, to AstraZeneca vaccine.
1: Dr. Iris, what about you? I have a mixed feeling about
2: it. On the one hand, the world's data suggests it's better to get that second dose of AstraZeneca if that's what you've started with, and that remains the standard worldwide. It's interesting that if you if a person lives in the U.K., they're not given the choice. Mm -hmm. If you start with AstraZeneca, you stay with AstraZeneca. The benefits of the same vaccine are, of course, that we have long-term data and real-world data on it. The disadvantage of it is that it could be that mixing and matching expands the body's immune portfolio. So in other words, instead of having only one type of antibody against the spike protein, you have one type developed by one vaccine, and another type developed by the messenger RNA vaccine. So there's an advantage to mixing and matching. My advice to patients is get what's available when you can get it. What matters is that second dose. We know that second dose locks in long-term immunity. And it's interesting that if you look at the B one one seven variant, one dose of Pfizer is about 50% effective. That's two weeks after getting it. But two weeks after that second dose of Pfizer... Boom! You've got 93% efficacy against B117, which is still mostly what we're seeing. What about the Delta variant? That's where it makes the, a profound difference. So, if you're talking Pfizer, it goes from 33% to 88% at two weeks after the second dose.
1: And now, there was new information uh, that we've been reporting here at Zoomer Radio, um, Dr. Iris, from England. Uh, studies showing now that in terms of hospitalization related to the Delta variant, that the percentage is in the 90s of, after both the first and second dose for Pfizer and 71% for AstraZeneca after the first dose and 92%, I believe, for AstraZeneca after the second dose. This is prevention of of hospitalization from the variant.
2: Absolutely. And what I'm talking about is symptomatic disease. And that's a critical difference. Because whatever vaccine a person gets, it's going to greatly reduce the chance of getting hospitalized. These are the serious endpoints, right? Yes. Getting hospitalized and dying from the disease. And the big thing on a public health level is reducing the spread of the disease. When I say, and other public health experts are saying, this is truly a race. It is a race to get second doses into arms versus the spread of more contagious variants. That's exactly what we're looking at in
1: this situation. I want to go to our listeners here. Uh, the phone lines are ringing 416 toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Your stories about trying to bring ahead your second appointment uh, now that you've been allowed to do so. Um, Justin and Dr. Iris, I want to ask you both, in terms of the frustration level that people are feeling in trying to make this happen, uh, should they just keep trying? Should they take a few days off? Justin, what, what do you suggest? Should you reach out to your pharmacy if you got your first shot at a pharmacy?
3: Yeah, I think this, the best advice that we still have is to go to that government website. You can filter it based on uh, search criteria for a vaccine, whether it's the AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna. Uh, go on waiting lists um, and uh, select the pharmacy of your choice. I know lots of people are doing that and getting callbacks and, and getting appointments. Certainly, we're going to see uh, a significant increase in supply over the next two to three weeks, which should help uh, in terms of meeting that demand, um, particularly with Moderna. And I think we really have to uh, continue to emphasize, and I I really like uh, what was just said around, you know, take the vaccine that's first offered to you because we are seeing people elect to wait uh, based on brand. Awareness of one versus the other, particularly with the mRNA vaccines. And people are actually not cancelling appointments and not showing up because they find out it's Moderna, as an example. And I think given the race that we just heard about, uh, it's important that you know that Moderna is safe and effective as well. It's, it's a good vaccine, and if it's available, take it.
1: And Dr. Iris, uh, what about you? What, what, what would you tell people who are frustrated on the Ontario portal? Because I've spent quite a bit of time on there in the last day, and it is frustrating at the moment.
2: It is a frustrating experience. And, you know, I synthesize with it. What I have found, I hate to say it this, because it doesn't sound like vaccine equitable. You know, it's not equitable. It may not be fair. But the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And I tell patients squeak and squeak loudly. Mm-hmm. Just reach keep, out, keep trying where you can. Right. Different pharmacies have different supplies. I've had patients travel way out of the city to get their vaccine, and they've done it.
1: Let's go to Joan in North York. Joan, what's your story about booking your second shot? And just turn down your radio if you could. Let's go to Joan in North York. Joan, what's your story? Joan, turn down your radio and give us your comment or question. Yes. I went on the provincial portal um, by, well, I phoned at um, a quarter to ten on Monday, June 7th. Mm-hmm. And uh, the earliest appointment that I could have was on July 3rd in the very far east of Scarborough. And um, shortly after, I was talking to my neighbor around the corner who also phoned the provincial, but she phoned at eight, and she was given an appointment this Thursday in uh, near
2: Markham Stouffville Community Center. So I decided to try to do better
1: and eventually ended up getting my second Pfizer shot on Monday night uh, at uh, Shoppers Drug Mart. Oh, well, congratulations. Okay, well, that's what Dr. Iris is talking about being the squeaky wheel. So that worked good. Let's go to Daryl in Toronto. Uh, Daryl, have you received your second shot?
4: Yes, I got it last Friday, and I'm just telling people out there, you got to be proactive and go after it. I uh, got my first Pfizer April 13th, and the next one was supposed to be sometime in August. And uh, as soon as, I guess it was a week or so ago that they let you try to rebook it, I got on both the, the uh, government, uh, you know, the portal online and the phone. Uh, the best I could do was get it moved up to July the 1st. And then as they were opening up more stuff um, last week, I, I uh, uh, basically went back on to see if there was any way to get that moved up sooner, figuring with more uh, people eligible, they'd have to be opening up more appointments. And uh, they said I uh, couldn't get it moved up any sooner than that. I also went on Shoppers Drug Mart line and registered with them where they were going to let me know that uh, the first you know, available place near me uh, that I could you know, make an appointment with... And uh, with all that going on, I uh, last Friday, I, I called again to see if I could a- any way of getting it moved up, and I ended up calling the shopper's drug market closest to me, and they said, "Yeah, we're giving them out uh, the Pfizers at uh, four o'clock this afternoon first come first.: sir.
1: Oh, wow, okay, good for so, you.
4: I raced over there, so you got to play
5: every card.: Yes.
1: That. Okay, that's great. Great advice. Let's take one more call, Judy and Milton. Go ahead.
5: Hi, good morning. Um, my husband is 81, and um, we tried getting online to book his appointment, and they didn't recognize his name, so I called a number that was given to us. And uh, they called back very early the next morning, and they said to him, well, can you come in tomorrow? Uh, and? So he went in, yes. he had his second shot, um, and uh, he, he wasn't booked until the end of July.
1: Oh, that's great. And what about you? I am getting mine on Friday. Congratulations. So, yeah, Milton is very well organized. I'm really glad to see that. So, yes. Well, there are some good news stories. Thank you uh, for your calls. Uh, Dr. Iris, I know you're going to stick around after the break. Uh, Justin Bates with the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Final word from you as people try to navigate the system for shot, two.
3: Well, I think when you have... Oh,
1: hang on, on, Dr. Iris. uh, Just one more word from uh, Justin Bates.
3: Yeah, I think uh, when you when you have a great volunteer service like Vaccine Hunters, it does underscore just how difficult and complex this has become. Um, and it shouldn't be this hard. We, you know, I spent a lot of time working with people on uh, certainly uh, Twitter and other um, social media platforms to try to help them. And everyone's pitching in here because this is a public health crisis, and we want to make this as convenient and as accessible as possible. We can only do that if we engage more of the community providers like primary care pharmacy uh, as a long-term solution as well as in the interim. Get the supply to where people need it, uh, and we're ready to do it.
1: And Dr. Iris, certainly we're hearing from our Zoomer radio listeners who've been successful. You just got to try every which way to get a shot.
2: But understand, the city is also doing things to, you know, like pop-up clinics Mm -hmm. and hotspot neighborhoods, bringing ambassadors to hotspots where there's more vaccine hesitancy. Let's Let's look at what we have and be mindful of it, be grateful for it. You know, we can hardly complain when two-thirds, practically two-thirds of Canadians have now been vaccinated. This is a monumental achievement. And to have had the vaccine and now to be actually contemplating being able to give doses to COVAX, we've longed for this day. And it's here, and I think there's a lot to celebrate. I don't think we should land in just a negative space about the difficulties. It is difficult. Yes. But then, on the other hand, damn, we're doing well. <laughs> <laughs> like I just
1: say, like it's,
2: it's pretty exciting. It if is exciting. Just get those second doses in quickly.
1: Anna. It is exciting. Uh, as we all keep trying, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, stay on the line. Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, thank you for your time.
3: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: And coming up next, along with Dr. Iris, Dr. Ray D'Anandon will join us, epidemiologist Dr. Ray D'Anandon, with his thoughts on a national framework for providing clear guidance to Canadians who've been fully vaccinated. How are we supposed to act once we've had both shots? We'll discuss next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. White Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back tomorrow.
1: So once you've received both doses of a COVID vaccine, are you good to go? What does it mean for you? Should you still mask everywhere you go? Can you make plans to travel outside the province or country? We're still awaiting guidance from the Trudeau Liberals on how we are to conduct ourselves once we've been fully vaccinated with two doses. Joining us to discuss, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, still with us, as is epidemiologist Dr. Ray Dianandon, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Ray, thanks for joining us. Dr. Iris, thanks for hanging on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So in the United States, Dr. Ray, uh, the Centers for Disease Control in the middle of May... Uh, offered guidance saying that mask-wearing could be eased for fully vaccinated Americans, allowing them to stop wearing masks outdoors in crowds and in most indoor settings. It also, the CDC, provided a list of activities that are safe for vaccinated people but could be risky for those who are unvaccinated. Uh, What is your opinion on the timing for this kind of guidance from our government?
6: Well, we need something. But it has to be well-tempered. And the CDC guidance, in my mind, was a bit premature and a bit problematic. So a U.K. scientist tweeted earlier this week about the Delta variant in that country experiencing exponential growth. And the first response to that tweet was from another U.K. citizen who said, What do I care? I've had my two doses. Let me get on with my life. And That to me underlines the problem of understanding what you can do. What you can do with two doses depends incredibly on what's happening in the community. It's not just about whether or not you had your vaccine. It's one of the indicators of transmission in where you live. So that's, that's difficult to create guidelines at a federal level if it depends on what's happening locally. So I'd like to see something around three sets of indicators. There's Mm. uh, how many people in your community have been vaccinated. Are you vaccinated? In addition to that, what is the status of the epidemic where you are with the reproduction number, the incidence rate and so forth? Also, what's the hospital capacity? That's going to dictate what what businesses can do. For example, uh, can Hollywood studios start filming in Toronto? even when the numbers are down, if the, uh, the hospital beds are still occupied, the stuntmen might get injured and they can't risk that. Right? So there's a lot of stuff happening here. And it's a little problematic to simply say, if you've had two doses, these are the things you can do. It's more
2: complicated than that.
1: Would it be something that, you, that the individual public health units could offer as guidance, or even provincially, or are we getting into it's still too broad of a territory?
6: Well, I think it's still possible for the federal government to offer guidance, but it has to be a broad framework, sort of like if the disease has this characteristics where you are, if you had two doses, and if this percentage of people where you live have, have had two doses, then these are the kinds of things you can do. Now, that might be too complicated for a lot of people to digest or even want to hear, but unfortunately, that's the most responsible scientific way to do this. What the CDC has done, while it is popular, has created some issues. For example, if you say that if you've had two doses, you can take off your mask. Suddenly you're in a pub, people take off their masks. How do you know they're the ones who've had two doses? Right? No one's taking a poll in the, in the room about how many people have had two doses. As well, two doses does not guarantee protection. The analogy I make is vaccination is like wearing high boots in floodwaters. Um, If the boots are perfectly impenetrable, that's great. But if the floodwaters are high enough, they're going to get over the lip of your boot and get your feet wet. So it matters how much disease is present. That will determine how safe you are with your vaccination.
1: What about you, Dr. Iris, in terms of having some sort of framework uh, for easing of mask wearing foremost, I guess?
2: It is extremely hard to have a one-size-fits-all. There's two issues. Can they give guidance? Yes, they could. Can they give detailed guidance? Even if they gave granular guidance, the problem of how are we going to enforce it? Who's going to card people and say, show me that you've had two doses? And that represents a serious threat. And the Delta variant is not to be underestimated. How much more contagious is it? It is practically two and a half times more contagious than the original variant. Do we, are any of these vaccines perfect? Absolutely not. And how many of us have full protection? Actually, a very small minority. So that's a serious problem. We have to have, you know, for this variant, we're probably looking at realistically anywhere between 80 to 90 percent of people being fully vaccinated, fully vaccinated, two doses, to have real protection in terms of herd immunity to really prevent spread. I'm not surprised our federal government has been a, a bit slow on issuing guidelines, I completely agree with what I'm hearing from dr. Ray you can't really do that I think the CDC was extremely premature in saying oh you just you don't need masks anymore that I don't agree with that I think even after being fully vaccinated until enough of us are fully vaccinated the responsible thing to do is to continue wearing masks to continue social distancing now what about vaccinated with vaccinated in indoor settings? I think that's probably safe, but we have to be very cautious about generalizations about just take off your masks and forget social distancing. I do not believe in that.
1: Okay, let me get a quick comment from Murray in Milton. Murray, what would you like to add? uh, Jane,
7: how are you? It's Milton anyway, but uh, I I agree with both these speakers. Uh, I keep
6: going back to the brass whale where they had 450 people. Exposed to the virus and no only could uh, contact uh, like 120 of them. Yeah. So if, if people aren't going to be honest, I, I don't think we should uh, give up the masks at all on, until this thing is all over. But if the government's going to impose something, I think it should be around 70% double vaccination.
1: Well, we're almost getting uh, to the point where I have to get final comments from you. Dr. Ray, here in Canada, Ontario, Southern Ontario, we are all, for the most part, used to and accepting of mask wearing in all kinds of situations. So I'm, I'm not really hearing from people that they want to stop wearing their masks. In fact, most people are like Murray and are quite happy to keep wearing them just for protection
6: yeah that's, and that's great news we're not the Americans. we keep hearing American data, American news American systems. we're not them we're quite different. and I, I want to uh, say that I fully agree with Dr. Iers I think two fully vaccinated people can probably interact indoors by themselves. It's the other stuff on top of that that's more complicated so uh, I don't know what to say anymore, except I think, I think we, we have to keep in mind that this is almost over. Let's not mess it up until it's fully over. We, have, we always have the potential to trigger a small fourth wave. I'd like to avoid that. Possible. So let's not be premature. Let's be consistent and responsible and conservative with how we unroll the uh, the economy.
1: And and you know, really, I mean, none of us, or those of us who have not gotten COVID, we haven't gotten anything else either, Doctor Iris. These public, the masking, the distancing, that this hand sanitizing has really kept us from being sick.
2: It's made a tremendous difference. And moreover, we should avoid a model that says reward those who have been vaccinated, and punish those who haven't. I worry about that. Masks are not a punishment. Masks are a public health effort. We are truly all in this together. And I don't mean just as a province or as a country.
1: I mean as a globe, we are in this together. Right. All so right. I, I, sorry? And I was just going to say I'll leave it there, but you have one more comment? Yes. And so if we, if we consciously move away from a model of reward those who
2: have been fully masked or fully vaccinated and, in fact, move better toward a model of global understanding, it makes a tremendous difference. That's how you really keep pandemics, world pandemics down.
1: Very good. I uh, thank you both for your time and your perspectives. Important information at this point in the pandemic. Thank you both. Many thank you. thanks, Jane. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research and epidemiologist Dr. Ray Dionandon, professor, associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Jane, for Libby, she returns tomorrow, and I think Bob Comsick has some good news about additional appointments uh, at uh, the City of Toronto for Moderna vaccines. That is coming up next here on Zoomer Radio.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snyder on Zoomer Radio with guest host... Jane Brown.
1: It is a beautiful late spring day out there. Hopefully, Libby is enjoying it. She's off today. She'll be back tomorrow. We have some hot topics to discuss with our strategy panelists on this Tuesday. John Capobianco, senior vice president, senior partner, Fleissman Hillard High Road. Karen Stints, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal finance minister, join us as they do every week at this time. Welcome to all of you. Good afternoon. Hi, hi, Jane. Let's talk first about the Ford PC's decision to invoke the notwithstanding clause in an historic vote at Queen's Park. It means election legislation has been passed to limit how much third parties may spend on advertising in the year leading up to the next election, which is June of 2022. John, I'll start with you there's been widespread criticism of this move, especially since it involved bringing MPPs back through all hours of the weekend, and not to discuss anything to do with the pandemic, but to protect the premier's interests ahead of the next election?
7: Well, I would I would disagree with the premise. I don't think it's to protect the premier's interests in the, in the election. I, I would say this is to protect democracy. And and you know, I, I as a, as a student of politics and somebody who watches it closely, like all of my, my fellow panelists, um, we have seen over the years the uh, the amount of of you know advertising and commercials that third parties have done, and it's gotten increasingly. Uh, more expensive and, and the, the budgets have become bigger and bigger. And it's come to it's become a point where it overtakes elections. And I think with now that we've got fixed election dates, so that we in other words, we people know when the next election is. It is far easier, uh, for these third party organizations to, uh, to spend millions upon millions of dollars. Uh, and essentially what they're doing is they're attacking the, the conservatives. It's not as if they're speaking about a specific issue that they want or, uh, uh, you know, a policy that they want to they want to further. It is essentially not only attacking the leader. And if it was it be it, Tim Hudak when he was the leader of the party, or John Tory, or now Doug Ford, it is it is billions of dollars being spent by unions who who can get away with it to attack the Conservative Party in uh, in a way that is to, to to further obviously the Liberals in getting in and and by and large. Um, they are effectively another opposition to the government. And what the government is saying and has said is we just want to be able to have some limits and some caps when it comes to this and some timing so that you can do it at a time when it's leading up to the election, not, you know, two months or three months before an election leading up to and including the election campaign. So I don't blame the government for doing it. The notwithstanding clause is is a constitutional right, a charter right for, for provinces to invoke. Uh, and I think the, the government finally said, enough's enough. We have to protect our democracy
1: here. Karen, what are what are your thoughts on the way this has evolved? Well, I mean,
5: I agree with John in that only that, um, you know, Ford is probably just getting sick of listening to those, uh, t- you know, teacher bashing, the, t- the union bashing the Ford government, the teachers union, because it's been pretty consistent throughout his term. And he probably just got tired of listening to it and decided he was going to put a law together to say you can't do that a year before the election. And, um, you know, but is it the right thing to do? No, it's not. The court said, you know, you shouldn't do it this way. But, you know, in fairness to the government, I mean, when Quebec passed a law that was clearly violating the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in a number of fundamental ways, they said, yeah, you know, we're just going to put the notwithstanding clause in. And so, you know, my sympathies are to Ford. I mean, you know, here he's got this irritating union that's beating up on him. And he's got a way to stop it. And the court said, no, you can't do it that way. And he's like, "Uh, I don't really want to deal with this issue anymore. Yes, I can. And so, and he's got precedent because in other cases, in other provinces, where there's actually, the consequences are actually much more dire. The government's chosen to use a notwithstanding clause, and there's a collective shrug across the nation for it. So, you know, why wouldn't he? You know, I, I think it's really more of a, of shining a spotlight on notwithstanding clause and whether it should continue to be utilized by provinces because you can't have a Charter of Rights and freedoms and a notwithstanding clause. At the same time. At the same time. And so, you know, it was a concession at the time, but now it's being used for purposes that are, Uh, You know, I I can't even say what, you know, the purpose is basically the government is just doing what it's doing, notwithstanding the fact we have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and is that what we envision as a nation? That's the question we have to answer.
1: Right. So, effectively, there is always an override situation in any type of court decision. Um, Charles, I mean... By the same token, uh, you can look at uh, the various organizations that John and and Karen have brought up: the Elementary Teachers Federation, the Secondary School Teachers Federation. But are there not are there not organizations that would equally back Premier Ford as well, leading up to the election? So has he effectively cut off any kind of advertising or limit advertising in support of his interests and in his government?
8: Yeah, certainly. Ontario, probably, I think, was one of the largest uh, spenders in the last election. But, but I think a point that Karen is making, and John, to some extent, is the prevalence that this clause would now be used more readily than it has ever been in Canada, or in Ontario, for that matter. Or for, for that, I mean, it has been used in Quebec. I think BC may have tried, but we in Ontario have never done so. And this, to me, just speaks blatantly to the mis-sense of priorities that exists because there are so many other problems, and the timing of this particular uh, bill, obviously is to limit uh, these third parties within the next year he could have made those amendments earlier on in his uh, mandate when he did change uh, the the limits and and uh, the increase of do- donations limits for others he, he bill two hundred fifty four was one that he introduced earlier on in the mandate he could have made those changes then, but he didn't, and so this kind of speaks to the self-serving nature of what he's putting forward, which we all appreciate and understand. And I think, to, to your point, people are going to shrug it off saying, hey, that's politics, and uh, that's the calculus by which he's, he's measuring his, his situation. But that's unfortunate to be able to use the notwithstanding clause uh, that violates the charter for that purpose. That's the part that worries me most, is the use of this clause and the use of what he's doing for such a, a minor issue. So on the one hand, Karen is saying it's a minor, so nobody cares. On the other hand, it's a major issue in that it's going to be used more readily. And I don't think that's 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 unfortunate.
1: Let's uh, piggyback off that comment, Charles, on voters and how they are digesting this event or if they're even paying attention. Will they forget about it when we get closer to the election? John, what what are your thoughts on that?
7: Yeah, I, I think this is not an issue that a lot of folks are, are paying attention to, given the fact that there's a pandemic and there's far greater and more dire issues that they have to deal with with respect to whether or not they can get a second dose or not. Um, you know, I think this is inside baseball to a lot of folks. Um, you know, those of us that watch politics, you know, we, we sort of see it. Those that are involved in the, in the third party advertising business obviously care about it. This is unlike the other, um, Issue that, that Premier Ford was going to invoke the notwithstanding clause at the early part of his term, which was uh, dealt with the, the downsizing or the cutting in half of of uh, city council, Toronto mm-hmm. City Council, when, when of course nothing else was 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 on the issue. There was a, an election happening at the city level, and it became a huge, uh, you know, not only a public uh, outcry. Led by the media and others, but other, you know, there was, there was other people like the mayor who considered that an issue. So that became a lot more a public scrutiny and front page news stories. This, I think, is newsworthy because it's a notwithstanding clause, but no one's going to understand or going to really care with respect to whether or not unions get to spend, you know, $800 million or $100 million or $600,000 in advertising to attack the government. Uh, and whether or not you can do it a month before the election or six months or a year before the election. A lot of it is inside baseball, so I don't think it's going to be um, immediate t- attention. And as we're seeing, you know, it's been playing out, and the weekend happened, and, and you know, politicians were, were you know, having to work over the weekend, which has happened before, mm-hmm. and it's not getting a lot of public outcry. It's getting some people, you know, concerned, but not huge as it was from the, when he was trying to cut city council in half.
1: Right, but that was the only thing we had to worry about back then, right? We weren't Correct. in a pandemic. Uh, Karen, what about right. the voters? Is this, uh, you know, in terms of the strategy, doing this a year in advance, it will be forgotten come next spring?
5: It will be forgotten. And it also, I mean, it really does cut the rug out from underneath the unions. And, you know, as, as a person just listening to those radio ads, I got to tell you, they were really starting to irritate me, irrespective of how I felt about the government's handling of certain things with respect to the pandemic. The, the, the ongoing board bashing of the teachers union was becoming a little tedious, as for me as an individual. So I actually, on this one, I don't think that they're going to suffer the wrath of the public on, on on using the notwithstanding clause on this measure because I think most people don't, they're not really paying attention. They they may have opinions, those ads may or may not work. I don't even know, but it, but it was becoming a little over the top to the point where even I was turning off the radio because I didn't want to hear them anymore. And so for that, I think that I think if there's going to be anyone, uh, if there's going to be, a, I guess, a pass, it, he will get a pass on this one.
1: I do want to get to our listeners who want to comment, and the numbers to call are four one six three six zero zero seven forty, toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, along with Karen Stintz, John Capabianco, and Charles Souza. Charles, uh, what are your thoughts a year out from the election? Will the voters remember this? Does it mean anything to them?
8: No, I don't think the voters are are going to. Uh, Criticized Doug Ford on why he is using the clause to limit attack ads. Nobody likes these attack ads, and they are tiresome. Keep in mind, his attack ads will continue uh, in the other off years. It's just in the last year. Yes. Now, under the under our previous uh, uh, government, we actually instituted a six months leave, so they've extended from six months to a year. That's in essence what they've done, and they limit the the amount of spending. But my point. Isn't the attack ads? I don't like them, I, and I'm not. I'm not saying that it's not a bad thing. In fact, I, I you know, the, the less of this, the, this nonsense exists, the better. I think we'll. It's we want. We want voters to be informed. We want information to be shared. We want it to get out, but of course, it gets a bit silly. It's the way and the process by which it was done that bothers me. Right? It's somewhat dictatorial. I don't know of any evidence based decisions that were made. I was arbitrary. There was no consultations. The framers of the Constitution didn't. Uh, anticipate people using Notwithstanding Clause to overrule the courts on something of this nature. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to protect democratic rights, and that's the argument that can be made as well. Doug Ford is arguing that we are protecting democratic rights by stopping people from speaking. That, that's counterintuitive. But what or this- he's saying that we're being influenced by great that by large organizations, who, by the way, are also democratically elected in their own in their own, in their own circumstances mm-hmm. um, it's the process and it's all about self-preservation and i think possibly the even the conservative movement haven't been as impressed and they're not in, you know they, they they may not have the same degree of support as they may have had in the past but regardless, it's, it's the process, it's why it was done, that bothers me most.
1: Well, and I'll put that out to you, the Zoomer Radio listener as well. What does this mean? Has the Ford government garnered too much control over the message uh, by limiting the messages ahead of the election? Or is uh, the issue, as Charles was saying, about the process and that uh, this overriding of a court decision has been done with this notwithstanding clause, which, you know, for all intents and purposes, was not to be used for something of this nature. Let's go to Daryl in Toronto. Daryl, what's your comment?
4: Well, firstly, I think it's not a matter of using the notwithstanding clause. Uh, To me, this is an abuse of it. And it would be interesting to find out who gets to decide that Um, as far as voting. I'm not going to forget about this. I think it's a dangerous thing. And uh, on, on this alone, they've lost my vote. Karen, you made a comment about uh, you know he, he, it was getting tedious and you were turning off your radio. Well, now Doug Ford is in your bedroom turning off your radio for you, and I don't see how that can be considered acceptable. Uh, I also I want to know what happens to someone who does not follow this uh, dictate from the Ford government. Um, do they you know topple a statue on them? Do they just shoot them in Queens Park, or do they have to take them to court? And what happens to a court that, you know, has to judge this when they uh, don't feel that it's constitutional?
1: Okay, Daryl, you mentioned Karen by name there. Karen, uh, your thoughts about his comments? (laughs) Yeah, my, again, uh, Daryl, my point being is that I thought that those
5: ads were getting over the top. And so, um, you know, Doug Ford had an option. He chose to use it. It, The option he chose is is, is constitutional because it was built in. As part of the um, Charter of Rights. And so, you know, he had those mechani- mechanisms available to him and he used them.
1: We'll take uh, one more uh, call. On, oh, sorry. Go ahead, John. Go ahead. C- can I just add quickly,
7: I think, to, to, to Daryl's comments regarding, you know, cutting off – he's not cutting off anybody's speech, freedom of speech, quite frankly. He's actually allowing people to keep doing it. But he's just saying that you instead of doing it six months before an election, you could do it a year before or three years before, or you can do it all the time. And you and there's a certain cap on what you can do, so it opens and it levels the playing field for a lot of other people who actually have a say in this democracy.
8: Oh, John, but he's doing it now. He's doing it today a year before mm-hmm. the election, he should have done that three years ago. He is absolutely well, the, limiting Charles, people's he did, he, ability to dialogue, and he's restricting it as a result.
7: No, no, and I and I understand that, Charles. But he also he did the legislation just now. The court decision came, so he has he was yeah. no he had no other option mm-hmm. but to challenge it now because the court ruling came down now. It didn't come then. It didn't come six months ago. Or five years ago, people challenged this uh, a long time ago and the courts came back with their decision. So he had, he had no other choice but to do it now or have to wait till after the next election. Okay, he wanted well, to a make sure democracy prevailed.
1: Yeah. One more comment here from Dennis in Brampton before we move on. Go ahead, Dennis. Yes, I'd like to remind everyone, we're talking
7: about teachers here, but I would remind you that it's also the unions representing the nurses who worked in nursing homes who were so badly let down by this government. And with respect to teachers, they were also let down by this government because all the promises about making the schools safe, distancing, etc. uh, were not followed. So I'll leave you uh, with that comment.
1: All right. And we will move along with our strategy panelists here now. Charles Souza, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco, Jane Forlibby. Let's talk about uh, what's been happening overseas. The G7 summit and NATO meetings have come to an end for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. How did he do? How did all the leaders do in showing unity in the months after Donald Trump uh, was president? Uh, Charles, I'll, I'll begin with you.
8: Yeah, I mean, it was a Biden welcome, and, uh, you know, they talked about the pandemic and the climate issues and some free trade. I know uh, Canada and the U.S. are, are now discussing, about, you know, what's going to happen next. Uh, Russia, or I should say China, was up for discussion in regards to the, the human rights and the Uyghur Muslim groups that are being persecuted in, in that country. But I think the biggest story is nobody wants to name Trump by name. And there was no rhetoric, so it was a bit interesting in that regard. Trudeau is now the second longest-serving member of the group, and we'll see what that means uh, after uh, Germany uh, has a reappointment. But I'm actually more interested in what Biden's going to do with uh, with Russia and when yes. he goes to visit them. I yes. mean, that that to me is going to be an interesting uh, meeting. That's outside the G seven, but it's all part of this trip. But I uh, listen. It's a. Uh, it was a quaint event, as I can tell. I don't know if there was much controversy.
1: Quaint, I love that. <laughs> it was definitely the diplomacy was back, uh, as far as uh, world leaders getting together. Uh, wouldn't you say, John?
7: Yeah, I would. I, it was, was kind of good to see everybody together, you know. And again, I, I watch those and, and, and like to see what comes out of these international summits. And, and it was one of those that I think, for the first time, not having President Trump at it. Uh, it was good to see what headlines were were coming out of these things that weren't involving Donald Trump, as as they were in the past. You know, with respect to who we talked to, who we didn't talk to, who we bumped into line, and who we didn't bump out of line. So there was actually some substantive stuff that was being discussed, and not least of which, of course, the vaccines and 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 whether or not Canada was going to continue to get more vaccines. As we heard that you know that, that we are, which is good news. The fact that the prime minister is visiting the Pfizer. Uh, uh, manufacturing plant, which I think supplies a third of our, of our Pfizer vaccines, uh, was a good strong message to to send, you know, the fact that, you know, we're going to continually get those. Those are interesting. Obviously the Delta variant and and how that's being affected in Europe and now that it's coming into Canada. And then also notwithstanding China, the fact that there was a lot of, a lot of discussions. Uh, on China and, and another opportunity for, for, I think, our prime minister to be able to put the case in to try to free the two Michaels. So all of that, I think, was positive. And, and you know, I'm glad that it happened. And, and, you know, good for them.
1: And Karen, your impressions of uh, Justin Trudeau's uh, meetings and uh, the way he portrayed himself, portrayed Canada and the breath of fresh air and having Joe Biden there for sure.
5: Yeah, that, that, there's no question that it was, um, you know, it was back to the world stage of talking about world issues and coming up with world solutions. And I think the great breakthrough really was the recognition that there has to be a collective response to China and that no, no individual nation can take on China. So there needs to be more of a concerted effort to... Um, and I think one of actually the most fundamental things that came out of that meeting was the recognition that they needed an infrastructure fund to fund third world countries for their ports and their and their bridges and roads because China has been slowly implementing that strategy, currying favor in many developing countries, and then using that leverage to their own advantage, and finally recognizing that the the G seven this has all been happening in plain sight, and it's been, it's becoming extremely. It's tilting the world balance, and so they've they've recognized that they need to now counter with something, and uh, that could not have been tr- done during Donald Trump years. And so, thank goodness that there's some new actors on the world stage, and thank God they're recognizing that these threats need to be taken seriously.
1: And in terms of vaccinating the world, there were some comments today from one of the top EU people that. 2 billion vaccines being donated by the richer nations is not enough and is, is not going to uh, warrant getting rid of this pandemic sooner rather than later. Uh, what about that, Charles? Ha- have have the nations done their part on behalf of the world's people?
8: Um, well, we need to support the developing nations and the poorer countries. We need people vaccinated and the variants are multiplying as a result of uh, people not taking the precautions necessary in some of these countries. So uh, I'm all in favor of, of those richer nations supporting the development countries and providing those vaccines where necessary.
1: John? Yeah, I do too. But
7: I, but I also think that you have to look after your own residents and your own citizens. And I think that there's still you know, a challenge with respect to ensuring, you know, we're hearing a lot of announcements, a lot of a lot of uh, vaccines that are being shipped here, which is great. But, you know, as an example, yesterday, you know, I had my first dose was April 23rd. So now that the government, and I'm in a hotspot of Toronto, obviously, so now that the government said anybody that, that got first vaccinated before, you know, May 9th can get your second dose and call the hotline. And I was on the phone all day yesterday trying to get a second appointment because my, my already scheduled second appointment is not until mid-August. And, you know, everybody I called said, no, sorry, we're full, the the appointments are full, we don't have enough vaccines to to limit the demand. So I'm saying, yes, we should be protecting and and supporting poorer countries, but let's make sure that everybody in Canada gets their second dose so that we can actually have a, a normal recovery uh, in an economy that can be back into shape by, by the summer. So I think we have to look after and make sure that we get our doses back, our doses delivered and into arms as soon as possible.
1: And Karen, what are your thoughts on uh, the richer nations and the plan they've come up with for 2 billion doses around the world? Yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a tricky
5: challenge because the, the pandemic will not, Will continue to be with us um, until we get those vaccines into the into the developing nations, and it, and it's one of the you know unfortunate realities is that Canadians are going to have to be vaccinated longer because the pandemic will still be globally circulating, and so you know again how do we get out of this cycle of well if we take care of ourselves before we help anyone else we're going to still be vaccinating ourselves for the next six years because it's going to take that long at this rate to get the developing countries vaccinated. And so, Um, it it, it, it's it's there's there and I don't there's no clear answer here, right? It's just unfortunately um, one of we can make the supply and the demand is there, but how do we pay for it collectively is the question.
1: Well, since we're on the topic of uh, the vaccine rollout, uh, there is the situation around Major General Danny Fortin, who was the head of Canada's vaccine logistics. Um, He was let go. He was fired as a result of a 32-year-old allegation, sexual misconduct allegation uh, from when he was a student. And now he has made headlines uh, calling for a judicial review of his firing. He implicates not only the Prime Minister but the Defence Minister the health minister, saying that they were involved in improper political interference in the military chain of command. Uh, Charles, how how is this playing out? I mean, Trudeau did respond to it today, saying enough is enough, but really saying nothing specific.
8: Yeah, I mean, there's uh, the, the the PMO and the minister have been beat up quite a bit for being too slow to react and allegations that have occurred in the past within the military. There's a culture of abuse that seems to be prevalent over many years. And uh, the Major General Fortin is uh, now being alleged uh, for misconduct. It's unspecified by which it is, but that's the case. But now he's arguing, well, you're breaching my rights as well and my right of privacy because it's I'm learning about things in the media without having consultations with you. And by all intents and purposes, you're not just being relieved of that job. He's also being relieved of military duty, and that's their argument, I guess, by his lawyer. So he's just saying things haven't been fair and haven't been impartial, and he's now a victim, I guess, of the overall story that's been surrounding uh, this uh, these situations and uh, the mishandling by the government, and now they're trying to over- uh, come uh, that issue by showing an example of, of, this, of this individual, and I guess he's fighting back. Well, he has every right I, to do so.
1: I, w- I would agree with that, Karen. If this had been the first such allegation, I would suspect that Justin Trudeau would have stood by Danny Fortin. But it almost seemed like okay. Any any whispers of of uh, poor behavior from years ago, and you're out.
5: Yeah. It, you know, I, so as I, I, you know, again, I'm I'm an observer to this. I'm not in the military, of course. But, you know, I, 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 have, to ask, I have to ask the question, is the right person being fired here? Hmm. And it seems to me the whole concept of ministerial accountability has been set on the shelf. Because when there has been instances of, of misconduct that were not investigated, and everyone's tripping over themselves now to make up for that fact, because it it all stems from the fact that there was an instance of sexual impropriety that wasn't investigated. Right, And all of this fallout now is is happening because of that. And so the person who should have been accountable was not held accountable. And now it seems like everybody else is, is is being asked to step aside or be fired or, you know, guys can't even go golfing anymore because somehow that is wrong, which I actually don't understand at all. But, you know, everybody in the military is now being painted with this brush when really the whole thing started because a complaint, a legitimate complaint, wasn't investigated by the minister.
1: Is, is that where we're at now, John? Uh, it, uh, should Harjit Sajjan be held more to account as the defense minister for uh, for these ongoing allegations and then the allegations that they were never investigated when they were first brought up?
7: Yeah, I think that you know, minister should have been shuffled a long time ago, quite frankly, Jane. I, I think he is, uh, under his watch, there's been a huge amount of, of disruption when it comes to the military. Not... not you know, not his own personal doing, but just or certainly over his oversight, uh, and some of the handling of it has been has been just ham fisted and I think it's caused the prime minister and will continue to cause the prime minister problems. As 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 Karen said. You know two colleagues golfing with this person and now are now have resigned and and you know the, I think I think the time that we're in now there's no question that, that, that from a public perception perspective the prime minister had to get rid of four ten but you know what happened to this whole you know innocent until so proven guilty uh, issue and now he's been literally charged and, and convicted in the public's eye mm-hmm. um but because it involves sexual allegations that weren't investigated back in the day. So it'll be interesting to see how this evolves, but it's certainly something that the prime minister is going to be wearing. And it'll be an election issue, without a doubt. I can imagine Arnold O'Toole, as a military guy, will bring this up during the election campaign more than once as a narrative over the overall military handling of issues.
1: Right. And he have, may have some answers to provide as well, having been in the military or some insight, at least, into the culture in the military. Exactly. Yeah. All right. We will leave it there. John, you mentioned um, you tried to get a second appointment. Did you get it? No, not yet, but I'm
7: trying every day.
1: <laughs> uh,
8: Charles, what about you? <laughs> I'm due uh, July 25th for my second, or June 25th. June, my oh, morning. so that's
1: coming up. And Karen? On Thursday. Oh, excellent. Well, I'm going to be superhuman. Yeah, Tell me right. how you guys did it. <laughs> I know mine is, uh, my, mine and my husband's June 30th. We moved up, we were AstraZeneca, so we moved it up from the 16 weeks to the 12, but I can't get it any sooner, but I'm going to keep trying because I guess a few days might make a difference, right? That's right. All right. Thank you all for your time, as usual.
8: Thanks, everybody. Care, Have a great day. Thanks,
2: Gene. Thanks,
1: all. Our Tuesday strategy panelists here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. Coming up next, let's hear your stories of booking an accelerated COVID-19 vaccine. Have you managed to move up your initial second appointment? And how did you do 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air.